If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, you're listening to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the last of our September 2011 editions. BBC History Magazine is, of course, on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. You need to visit our website, www.historyextra.com, for more information, or keep up with us on Twitter, twitter.com historyextra, or Facebook, facebook.com slash historyextra. Coming up this week, we have a very special podcast offer for US and Canadian listeners. Plus, he was a man who was probably more famous and more popular than anybody else in the country at that time, with the, with the exception, I suspect, of the king. That was Gary Sheffield on Field Marshal Haig. If, if I think if a historical novelist decides that he's actually a historian, then he's in the wrong job. And that was Bernard Cornwell on King Alfred the Great. Our first interview is with Gary Sheffield, who is Professor of War Studies at the University of Birmingham. He's a particular expert on the First World War and the convener of the MA in First World War Studies at Birmingham University. He's recently been researching the life of Field Marshal Douglas Haig, and indeed his book The Chief, Douglas Haig and the British Army, has just been published by Oran Press. I spoke to Professor Sheffield about Haig's career after the First World War, which is a subject that he has written about in the October issue of BBC History magazine. You've been writing uh, about Haig, um, who obviously is one of the more famous figures in British history. Um, now, we're not going to go over too much of the, of the, sort of the lions led by donkeys uh, line, because that's something we've, we've, we've discussed in the magazine before. Um, but I think it would be useful... What, what we are going to talk about is, is Haig after the First World War. What would be useful to just get a little idea about uh, how he was seen as the war was coming to a close. When Douglas Haig came back from France in 1919, he was a national hero. He was seen as the man who had won the war, the man who had steered the British Army through the crisis of near defeat in the spring of 1918 and brought it to victory in November. And when he came back to Britain, everywhere he went, he was fated. He went on a triumphant tour of his native Scotland and he was given um, honorary doctorates, for example, at Edinburgh University, where a senior member of the academic staff described Haig as the new Germanicus, as in of the Roman general who tamed the the, uh, the, the, the German tribes. Mm. Um, and he was a man who was probably more famous and more popular than anybody else in the country at that time, with the, with the exception, I suspect, of the king. Really? That's, that's, that's extraordinary then, isn't it, given how we view him today? It is. I mean, we, um, this fact of Haig's popularity has been 
you know, almost entirely overlooked, particularly in, in, in the popular memory. Although actually, if you think about it, it's not surprising. It's a, it could be seen as being a short-term and transient popularity, because after all, he was the man who was in command of the army at the end of the war. What I find interesting, actually, is not that Haig was popular uh, as a victor in 1918-1919, but actually he, he became even more popular as the decade went on, as he took up this role uh, 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 of, of, of leading, effectively being the leader of British war veterans. So we'll come on to that in just a second. So, but, so there was so that popularity wasn't couched in any way in the sense of that lots of people died and he was responsible for that. That wasn't really coming into the picture. I think at the end of the at the end of the war, the reaction across Britain, whether it's been in the in the army or on the home front, was simply one of relief. The killing was over. Or the major killing was over, I, sh I, sh I should say. Yeah. Britain had not been defeated, which had seemed on, seemed on the cards as recently as, as March and April of 1918. And the, the alliance of which Britain was a key part was victorious. There were some undercurrents of people wondering about whether the war could have been fought more cheaply, um, whether generalship was not really being questioned at this stage, but some people clearly were, were, were asking, asking some questions. But at the time, Haig, I think, was caught up in this general sense of relief and almost hysteria that the war was over and Britain had won. Okay, so, so he comes back, a hero, and he doesn't just retire to his country pad and get out his pipe and smoke. What does he do in 1919? Well, in 1919, actually, he's given a very tough and demanding job. He becomes uh, Commander-in-Chief Home Forces, which actually, in 1919, 1920, Britain appears uh, to be on the verge of revolution. Uh, in retrospect, we can see that those fears were, were overblown, but certainly there was massive industrial unrest. Of course, the Russian Revolution had taken place only a couple of years before, and there were genuine fears that Britain might go the same way. And so as Commander-in-Chief of the Home Front, um, what Haig was asked to do, effectively, was to oversee both the demobilisation of the army over the, uh, with the, of course, the, the politicians, in fact, in this case, Winston Churchill and ultimate control, but also to um, command the army in activities such as strike bait breaking and so on and so forth. So, so it's very interesting, having spent a lot of time going through Haig's uh, wartime um, papers, to go through his papers for 1919, 1920, we find him dealing with matters such as tram strikes in Leeds uh, and, and, and the potential for you know, causing chaos to the civilian populations there, rather than dealing with you know, preparations for the Battle of the Somme or anything like that. But I think Haig, Haig does, plays an important role in 1919, 1920, because the, the government, and this is Winston Churchill, who is the Secretary of State for War at this stage, makes the appointment. I think the government sees they need a big, powerful, and popular figure to actually give a sense of authority to the army on the home front. And, and I think Haig does a pretty good job in overseeing this, you know, really quite traumatic period in, uh, in, 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 in British history, from the military point of view. So, how real do you think that threat of revolution in 1919 was, and where were the main sources from which it might have come? I actually don't think that there was a, much of a chance of a revolution in the sense of those that happened in Russia in 1917, or actually some of the outbreaks in defeated Germany mm. in 1918, 
Uh, I don't really think there was much of a chance of that ever, ever, ever happening. What we actually saw was, I think, the industrial working class flexing its muscles, because after all, during the war itself, um, pay had gone up, uh, labour became aware of its power within a, a, a war economy, and at the end of that period, it's not surprising that there were more strikes for better pay better conditions and so on and so forth. The fear was that this would be turned into revolutionary type activity and indeed that was the intention it must be said of some of on, 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 on the extreme left. In reality I think we can see 1919-1920 as being really about industrial and social turmoil rather than political turmoil. Um, you might argue that the fact that the Labour Party suddenly, well, at the end of the First World War, became a much more serious uh, political contender for power. Of course, the first Labour government comes within a few years of the, of the end of the war as being a way of diffusing any sort of um, tension of this, this sort. And, and, and the British working class, I think, is fundamentally reformist uh, uh, socialist in as much as as they are socialist at all, because large sections of the of the of the working class remain resistant to the Labour Party and socialism um, for many years to come, they are that rather than revolutionary. But nonetheless, from the perspective of GHQ Home Forces, or for that matter, Ten Downing Street, the potential for revolution looked very real in 1919-1920. And. Those social tensions, that potential revolution, was presumably exacerbated by the return of all the veterans and who were looking for for work and something to do with themselves. Absolutely, it was. Uh, it's one of the great problems that faces any large wartime army. What do you do with the soldiers at the end? Do you you demobilise them. What sort of conditions do they go to? Do they go back to jobs? Do they go on the dole? This is this is a major problem. Of course, this, this is absolutely nothing new. You had similar problems after, for example, after the end of the Napoleonic Wars in, in 1815. Um, what happens at the end of the First World War? It's particularly difficult because the country very rapidly starts to run into economic problems and jobs are not in abundance at this time. And you have disappointed expectations because famously uh, during the, the 1918 um, general election, the, uh, well, the phrase has come down in history actually was slightly different is there will be a, 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 land, a land fit for heroes to, 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 to live in. Mm. And when people came back, uh, they discovered that actually their expectations in many cases were not met. There was unemployment, there was short time working, and so on and so forth. And so there's this very large number of soldiers who have come back from the army who are either unemployed or in precarious um, positions, who certainly you know, are, are, are having a pretty tough time immediately, immediately after the end of the war. And one of the great themes of Haig's speeches, even before he retired from the army, is actually the need for employers to give work to ex-soldiers. So, so we've got, got all these veterans coming back and there's, there's this question about what's going to happen to them. And after a while, Haig comes to be sort of the veterans champion, doesn't he? He, be, he becomes the veterans champion from very, very early on indeed. Uh, the, it's important to remember actually that Haig 
is a, is a serving soldier through to, to 1920. He has this important position at yeah. home. And that should mean that actually he takes a, a political stance. Technically, field marshals never retire. Haig stepped down from actually having an active job in 1920. But even before he stepped down from having from, from, from an active job, he came out being very, very critical of the government's treatment of veterans. In July 1919, he gives uh, evidence to a parliamentary committee and he's absolutely scathing about the treatment of veterans. And this actually is political dynamite. It makes the front pages on the newspapers the following day. There are leaders in newspapers saying, you know, Sir Douglas Haig is speaking for, for, for his soldiers and so on and so forth. And at that point, I think Haig actually makes a very deliberate statement of how he intends to behave over the coming years. That he's actually going to speak out for the soldiers. He is not going to be... Um, constrained in what, what he says, and bearing in mind he's answering directly to a member of the government at that time, to Winston Churchill, this is pretty inflammatory stuff. Hmm. So he was, he was getting political when he shouldn't also be, or was well, he not really getting political? No, well, it, I think it all comes down to what you define as being political. Now, what Haig meant by being non-political was being non party political right. and he certainly I think he, he, he was I think conservative with a big and a small c he voted for the uh, Lloyd George's conservative dominated coalition in, in, in 1918 but he never actually formally signed up to any political party but nonetheless he saw politics uh, as being party politics and he somehow I think quite genuinely believed what he was doing was not political in fact, it was deeply political. And one might argue in terms of the traditional relationship between senior officers and the government, he stepped over that line that divides um, politics from, from military affairs. In reality, all senior soldiers do this. You can't be a senior soldier without having a degree of, of political nous and getting involved in, in, in the politi political game. Um, and the government, I think, was fairly alarmed at this. I mean, I've, I've, I haven't seen any documentary evidence, but I would be surprised if this wasn't a factor in Haig's, Haig being retired after a year uh, from, from his post as, as, as Commander-in-Chief. And of course, he's then not offered uh, a big alternative job. So many of the other senior generals of the First World War, people like, uh, like Bing, for example, General Bing goes off to be Governor-General of Canada. Uh, Haig isn't offered any any of these jobs. And how old was he? Haig, Haig, oh gosh, uh, he, he's, he's in his mid-50s by this stage. He's born in 1861. So still, still oh, yeah, primed for, for another job. Absolutely. Hmm. Now, of course, I think the fact that Lloyd George remained in power until 1922 uh, has something to do with this. I mean, Lloyd George and Haig, they had this terrible relationship from the First World War. He's unlikely to get any pre uh, preferential treatment from him. But after 1922, I think that he had become so deeply uh, involved in veterans affairs, I suspect that even if he had been offered anything, he wouldn't have taken it. Because I think that what Haig saw his role in the post-war world as a continuation of the paternalism of the Victorian officer, of course of which he was one, that the officer should look after their soldiers, and I think Haig simply saw this as being 
something that he had to do in a very paternalistic way in peacetime um, really is an extension of, of, of his wartime role. Haig was a man who his absolute um, the guiding staff, I could put it that, that, that way, is duty. I think he saw it as his duty to stand up for, defend the men who fought for him. Now interestingly, unlike Bernard Montgomery in the Second World War, who did seem to be quite guilty about the, about the men who, who died when fighting under his command, I don't think Haig had any sense of guilt about his generalship. He wasn't trying to work out his guilt by behaving like this in the post-war world. I simply think he saw it was the right thing to do. And that actually was what he did for the rest of his life, until his death in 1928, to act as the, the effective leader of the British ex-servicemen and fight very hard for their, for their rights, for their pensions and so on and so forth. So you don't see him ever harbouring any ambitions to, to do a Wellington and, and take political office after, after military? No, 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 I don't. I mean, in many ways, Haig and Wellington are quite interestingly... Um, contrasting characters. Uh, I think Haig was, was entirely genuine in his stated dislike for party politics. Um, and I also think that actually he, in his own mind, had very clear ideas about what a soldier should and should not do in getting involved in politics. So I don't think there, there was any real um, fear of him doing a Wellington or, or, or of course, more, more, uh, one of Hague's contemporaries, uh, Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson, did, did go into politics. Of course, was assassinated uh, by Irish Republicans. Um, there's a, a, a book that was published some years ago about Wilson called The Lost Dictator. Well, I would, all I would say is that if, if Hague actually had harboured political ambitions, he would have been a much more credible leader of a, of a military party than Wilson was. So there's an interesting counterfactual there about, about what, what might have happened if Haig had gone into politics. But we won't go there. We'll talk about his, 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 um, his, his role with the veterans then. So, and, and specifically, he gets involved with the, with the British Legion. He does. I mean, the British Legion is um, created uh, and, uh, and Haig, Haig becomes the, uh, the president in 1921. Mm. Now, there are uh, several pre-existing veterans groups uh, some of which are actually quite conservative and right-wing, others were quite, quite left-wing. And Haig, I think, has, has two reasons for wanting to become involved with the British Legion, which in the end encompasses all of these groups. The first one is one I've just talked about. He's actually, I think, this, this, this sense of duty towards his men. The second, I think, is that he sees it as an instrument of, of, of social control. Uh, so, for example, he writes uh, in a private letter that he hopes that the, uh, the Officers' Association, which... If, if that becomes involved in what is to become the British Legion, will act as a moderating influence on the more left-wing bodies. And, and so Haig, I think, you know, I don't think we should underestimate the degree into which he sees the British Legion and more generally his role as, as leader of the, um, the ex-servicemen as being an a important factor in ensuring political stability. Um, and on occasions he sort of shoots his mouth off. So, for example, in 1926, at the time of the general strike, um, he, he writes very unwisely uh, about how, how the, uh, the Legion has, in effect, saved Britain from, 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 from revolution during the general strike. And of course, the, the, the Legion contains a large number of working-class uh, ex-soldiers, and they're not terribly happy 
by this overtly political stance. And even some of the more conservative officers who are actually working with him on the Legion actually have to sort of suggest to Haig perhaps he ought to tone the rhetoric down a, 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 a little. But in spite of that, actually, Haig doesn't lose the affection and the respect of the vast majority of the members of the British Legion. But Haig, I think, you know, is, is, is very clear. The British Legion is a, is a force for stability, by which he means a conservative, a small-c conservative force, in a time in Britain, the 1920s, which is still um, you know, quite, quite tempestuous. Hmm. So how was the British Legion um, viewed by the establishment? at that point then. It wasn't called the Royal British Legion then, was it? That's, didn't become a Royal Organisation until much later. Yeah. No. So, so how was it viewed by, by those in power? Well, I think that they regarded on the whole as being a good thing. Um, there's a, a good deal of work being done by, by historians on the um, reaction of the British state to soldiers coming back, uh, back, 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 back from the war. And the British state, in contrast ironically to Weimar Germany, actually didn't do that much to help ex-servicemen. They were much more reliant on charitable work. And the Legion, of course, is not the only organisation working among ex-soldiers, but it's a very important one. So to that degree, I think it's seen as a, as a good thing. However, the, the, the government became rather nervous when the Legion did try to flex its muscles. At one point, there is a proposal from some of the more radical Legion members actually to try to get legion uh, legion policy of legion constitution changed to actually get make legion policy that um, members of parliament who actually um, don't agree with the legion's proposals for pensions that legion members actually work against them and vote against them in their own constituencies so actually the legion ceases to become a sort of benevolent drinking club and becomes a a, a really potent political force and the government actually write to Haig about this, and Haig is fairly horrified by the implications, and he, he hastens to ensure them that they, that, that, that won't happen. So it's not just on the left that there is some suspicion of the Legion. Some on the right, some in the Conservative government of the 1920s, for example, see the Legion at least potentially as, as, as a destabilising force. Hmm. Well, and I suppose that's understandable in the sense that there's however many million trained soldiers we're going in one direction under one under one voice well i mean again it, this 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 sounds strange looking back from our perspective because we know what happened but put it into context of the 1920s that germany uh, goes through this terrible time of ter turmoil at the end of the first world war uh, 1923 of course you've got the the beer hall putsch uh, launched by by hitler's fledgling nazi movement and, and who's involved in that? Eric Ludendorff, General Eric Ludendorff, who was Haig's principal opponent on the Western Front from 1916 to 1918. You have veterans' organisations in France flexing their muscles. You have the, in effect, collapse of the liberal state in Italy as a former Italian soldier, Mussolini, takes power, the black shirts. And so it isn't entirely a stretch of the imagination, if you are there at the time, to imagine there being a British version of, at the very least, a, a, a powerful continental-style um, veterans organisation. Um, and Haig, I think, while he certainly didn't harbour political ambitions, I think did quite like the thought of himself as being, in effect, the commander-in-chief 
of these of these people. Um, so I, I, I actually think that the fact that Haig didn't genuinely didn't have political ambitions and actually was very concerned to stay within the political parameters of the time is of some considerable importance for British history. If we play the, the counterfactual game again, mm. had Haig had political ambitions, well, who can say what would happen? But at the very least, it would have put a major and quite destabilising additional force into the already fluid British politics of the 1920s. And he was one among those in the British establishment who admired Mussolini. A number of people said things about Mussolini in the 1920s and early 30s, they later lived to regret. I suspect mm. Haig, of course, died in 1928, would have been one of those. Churchill is one, um, Basil Little Hart, who was uh, you know, a, a, a liberal-minded man, a military historian, um, um, military thinker. They all actually, I think, uh, fell for what Mussolini op offered in the 30s in the form of the corporate state and tended to underplay the amount of violence involved in the fascist regime. So Haig famously um, said something on the lines of after meeting Mussolini in, in Italy in 1926, uh, what a man, he, he really is exceptional. Um, now, wrenched out of context, that could actually be deployed as, 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 a, as, as a quote to say, well, Haig obviously was anti-democratic. No, it wasn't. I think you need to look at the, the context of the time in which uh, as historians like Martin Pugh have, have, have shown British democracy actually I think was a lot more fragile than we have given it credit for and at a time in the 1920s when democracy did not seem to be delivering the goods in many people's eyes the idea of a strong corporate state and of course Mussolini's was the the best example around at the time had a lot of attraction for some people at, 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 at that, that, that time so yes I think Haig, Haig did admire Mussolini in the mid mid 1920s, but I did. I don't really think he had fully understood the nature of the fascist regime any more than someone like Winston Churchill also said similar comments did at the time. Mm. Okay, so, so in summary, then you think that Haig was was basically pretty important in maintaining political stability and and ensuring continued democracy in Britain at a time when it could have gone the other way. Yes, it is. I mean, the problem is you're arguing a negative because Haig didn't have political ambitions. He didn't get involved in politics. He didn't lead the assembled masses of the British Legion uh, in a political direction. Uh, so it's a case of, you know, the, the, um, the, the dog that did not bark. But nonetheless, I think it actually is quite a significant factor. I think that because historians, understandably, have concentrated on Haig's wartime career and his generalship has been assessed you know either positively or neg negatively by many historians over the years we've tended to forget about what he did after the war uh, if you read most biographies of Haig uh, uh, that they tend you know the, the, the post-war period tends to be written off quite quite quickly actually he was I think a really significant figure that he played a role in in in, in the legion which I think was extremely important and had he chosen to go in a political direction, he could have had a pretty destabilising impact on a rather fragile democratic system in Britain in the 1920s. So I think Haig is important, probably as much for what he didn't do as much as what he did do in post-war Britain. Mm, okay. Last question then is: Where does this leave his legacy? I mean, we've, 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 a lot of people have analysed what he did in the war. 
and now you've been analysing what he did after the war. Where does, where does this leave Haig as a sort of historical figure? I think Haig is, is a much more important figure than many historians have given him credit for. Now, my chapter in my, 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 my biography is just one chapter in a quite a long book. I think there's a lot of scope for further investigation of this. I think at the very least that the role of Douglas Haig, and more generally the role of the post-war British veterans, need, need to be incorporated into wider studies of, of post-war British politics. There's been some excellent work done on the, the Legion, for example. Um, Neil Barr's book, uh, The Lion and the Poppy, I think is an excellent analysis. But we need political historians, historians who have a, uh, a broader overview of Britain in the 1920s and 1930s, so to start taking account of the ex-servicemen and their leaders, of which Haig, I think, is by far and away the most important. Well, there's a challenge. Political historians, are you listening? Thank you, Garrick. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Gary Sheffield. He's written a feature on Haig for the October issue of Beeb's History magazine and his book The Chief Douglas Haig in the British Army is published by Orem Press. Now for that podcast offer. For our US and Canadian listeners, subscribe to the magazine and get 13 issues for only $45 US or $60 Canadian by calling our toll-free number 1-800-342-3592 and quoting the code g one jhs3 this offer is only valid until the 31st of october 2011 now our second interview is with renowned historical novelist bernard cornwell who's probably most well known for his sharp series set in the napoleonic wars his recent novels focus on the time of king alfred the great in the late 9th century when vikings and anglo-saxons were battling for supremacy his latest book, Death of Kings, takes the story up to the death of King Alfred. And the first question I put to him was, how much research do you put into each book? Well, I think research is actually a lifetime activity. I know that sounds incredibly evasive, but it's, it's, it's almost impossible to answer. I mean, I've, I've been reading about the Saxons for 40 years. And so there, there's a huge amount of, I guess, background material. Um, dedicated research for each book, well, th there's not that much research you can do on the, on the Alfredian period and the death of Alfred. I mean, obviously, there's the, there's the um, you know, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and there's Asser and people like that. Uh, but I guess about a couple of months of, of sort of dedicated reading. But behind that is a lifetime of reading. So what, what do you find is the best way to immerse yourself in the period? Do you, do you actively go out and talk to academic historians? Do you read secondary works? You talked about primary sources just then. Or do you watch reenactments, visit sites? What, what, what are the ways <laughs> that you can really get into a, into a period like this? Oh, I think you sit down and work. Right. And that's uh, the only way to do it, isn't it? I mean, you, you just sit down and you, and you think, OK, this is uh, today I'm going to go back to 899. And uh, I mean, yeah, you read everything. And it, you, I'd visit the places if there's 
you know, if there's anything to, to see there at all, uh, which there is a surprising amount of Alfred's England left, of course. Yeah. Um, but but uh, really, it's, it's, it's sit down and, and, you know, just do the work. Okay. Um, and just sort of uh, moving further on that point, what is more important to you in, in, in writing these stories? Is it, is it historical accuracy or is it the good story? No, it's I'm a storyteller. I'm not a historian. Mm. I mean, and this is actually crucial. I mean, yep. if, if I think if a historical novelist decides that he's actually a historian, then he's in the wrong he's in the wrong job. I mean, if, if you if you want to tell people about the I don't know the Elizabethan religious settlement, then for God's sake, write a non-fiction book and get it right. But mm. if you actually want to entertain people, then write a story with Jesuits and the shrubbery. And uh, so my job is to tell a story. And, and, but I think that's, if you like, a gateway to history. For a lot of people who might otherwise never read history or not be interested in history, they will come to it through, through an historical novel or maybe a film or a TV series. And, and that's good, because I always try at the end of the book to put an historical note which says, look, if you want to know more, these are the places to go and find out more. Yeah. Okay. But no, I'm not, my job is not to tell the real history. Uh, and I don't even know if I could tell the real history. Uh, my job is to be, tell an imaginative and, I hope, exciting story. So, above everything, I'm a storyteller. Do your, do your readers understand that? Or do you get a lot of correspondence from people saying, you know, great book, but you got this wrong? And no, I don't get that, too much of that. I mean, I, I'm sure you always get a few. Uh, I, mean, I wrote a series of books about, about um, Arthurian Britain, and I got a whole lot of letters which said, you know, dear Mr. Cornwall, uh, I read your book and you got it all wrong. I was Lancelot in a previous existence. But, you know, thank God, there aren't, nobody had a previous existence in Alfred's England. They're always <laughs> either knights of the round table or Egyptian princesses, don't ask me why. <laughs> right. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, you do get, you get some people who are, who are terribly helpful, actually. Um, and, but, but happily not too many. But, I, you know, I, uh, I, I don't think people come to, I mean, historical novel expecting to, to be given a, a course in Anglo-Saxon history. Yep. I mean, you know, they're going to go off and, and, and read the non-fiction histories if that's what they want. It's, I don't know, maybe they do, and if they do, maybe they get it, which is great. Yeah. And do you think, do you have much contact with the historical community, with academic historians? Do they ever question you about what you're doing? Or, or Yeah, I do, and, and it's usually very nice. And, I mean, it, there's, there's not a whole lot. I mean, I think most of academic historians probably regard historical novelists as sort of the bottom of the heap, and quite right, too. I mean, I'm, I have absolute sympathy with them. Uh, but, but uh, I mean, the ones I have spoken to or do speak to are always incredibly helpful. Just talking specifically on the, on the content of, of, uh, of, the, of the latest book and the series that's gone before it, this is the sixth in the uh, Alfredian series, isn't it? Is that right? I think so. Yeah, Actually, yeah. I was going to take your word for it because I can't remember. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, that's what the press release says. So let's, let's oh, go it must be that. right. It must be right, yes. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, we're, we're into a period here where, um, you know, it is, it's, it is quite dark. You know, they, they, they called it the Dark Ages for, for a bit. Um, quite hard to understand what's going on. So how do you, how do you construct a story around, around very limited information? It, it is just creating a lot of things, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah, and I mean that's that's actually a gift to an historical novelist if we don't know too much about a period. I mean, there's a, in in Death of Kings, there's the the Battle of the Home at the end, and and you know there's this great mystery: why why did the men of Kent not obey orders and withdraw and and bring on this battle, which uh, essentially they lost? But uh, well, nobody offers an answer. I mean, in the sources, there is absolutely no answer, and unless somebody sort of digs up a, a new manuscript which explains it, then you know we don't know why why that happened. And an historian, all he can do is record that it happened, and he can maybe suggest three or four reasons. But the historical novelist actually has to, to make up a real decision and say, look, this is why it happened. Now, it may not be the right thing, but, uh, I mean, that's the fun of doing it. Mm. 
The, the most famous um, uh, real historical figure in your series, uh, apart from your, your hero, isn't isn't a, a real figure. But, but the, the person who, who is who is a, a real historical figure is King Alfred the Great. Hmm. What's what's your take on him? How, how have you how have you constructed him? Well, my take on him is, is I'm amazingly impressed. I mean, first, he's an incredibly intelligent man, and, and, and I think that's what stands out above everything else, is his intelligence. And, I mean, intelligence is not that frequent in monarchs. I mean, you, you know, it's another reason to absolutely admire Elizabeth I, is she, she is such an intelligent woman. But Alfred, similarly, is an extremely intelligent man. Uh, I think the biggest take I have on him is that he's, he's nothing like the statues of him in Winchester or Wantage, which you know, shows some guy who looks like a second row forward. Uh, wearing armor and holding a sword. I mean, this was a man who was chronically sick all his life. Uh, he probably suffered from Crohn's disease. And he's a man who we know from, 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 from the testimony he left us, he's a man who above everything values scholarship and education and of course the church. He's an extremely pious man. Uh, so this isn't, this isn't the figure of a great warrior. I mean, a man who's perpetually sick and whose real interest is scholarship in the church is, is, is probably not going to be a second row forward carrying a sword and hacking away at the Vikings. But he uses his intelligence to, to defeat the, the, the Danish invasions and to preserve, to preserve the Anglo-Saxon culture and language and society. And, and for that, you know, we, we owe him a great deal. That, I suppose, is why he's called the Great. You, you may not have a view on this, but I don't know whether your series is, is going to be extending into into the future after this. But um, we, we ran a feature recently where we had an author comparing the respective merits of Alfred and his grandson Athelstan, and the author was 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 suggesting that Athelstan has been sort of unfairly uh, 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 overshadowed by Alfred because basically uh, Victorians admired Alfred and Athelstan got shunted to the side. Do you, have you looked at Athelstan at all? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to do. Yes, absolutely. Athelstan's in the new book, but he's only a baby. Uh, I mean, remember that, that, that Alfred left... He had a spin doctor. I mean, Asser is a spin doctor. Mm, Alfred's and uh, Alfred did, yeah. And, and so we have far more sources for Alfred's reign than we do for Edward or Athelstan's reign. Uh, but essentially, I see it that, that Alfred sets, the sets, if you like, the, the, the programme. And, it, and it's, his, it's his son, Edward, his daughter, Ethelflaed, and his grandson, Athelstan, who complete that programme. But the, the dream is Alfred's. Um, and what happens after Alfred is you're watching his son, his daughter, and his grandson actually complete the work that Alfred dreamed of. So yeah, Athelstan's, Athelstan's surely a great man, but we don't know as much about him as Alfred. And, and I mean, that's just one of the accidents of history. Alfred had the spin doctor. He left far more written testimony than Athelstan did. You mentioned earlier that you'd uh, you, that you thought there were a lot of places that you could visit that were associated with the Alfredian story. Was there anywhere particular that you went to have a look at to try and uh, get to grips with what was going on? Well, n not so much for this book, um, but I mean, you know, for instance, Ethendon is still there. The battle site of Ethendon is still there, and and of course, it's it's if you it's very atmospheric to go to Winchester or, or any of the places down in Wessex. Um, I suppose the best way to get a, a sort of sense of Alfred's England is simply to, you know, to be in Alfred's countryside. It, it's, uh, you know, thank goodness a lot of it is still there. Okay. It's um, 30 years, I think, since your first sharp novel was, was published. Um, have you seen any particular change in the world of historical fiction since then? Has there been a, an explosion in historical writing? I think there's been an explosion. I mean, I, I can remember when I first started writing I mean, 30 years ago, I mean, being told by a publisher there's no market for historical fiction. Um, and, you know, maybe that was true. It's not true any longer. I mean, uh, you know, every, every time I go into a bookshop, I see more and more historical novels, which is great, you know. I mean, uh, and I hope it's not, you know, the fashion doesn't pass too quickly. I hope it, you know, at least 
lasts as long as I do. What's what's driving that? Do you think? Have you got? Any I have no idea. I mean, but I actually have no. I mean, you probably know the answer better than that. To be honest, Dave, I, I don't know why. I don't know why we suddenly become so interested in our history. Um, or whether indeed we are, whether it's just that there's a lot of historical novelists writing who are good storytellers. Um, but I actually have absolutely no explanation whatsoever for why the historical fiction has, has been so popular over the last 20 years. Um, I mean, I could hazard a guess, but I'm sure it would be wrong. <laughs> OK. I mean, we have got quite a few historians who've, who've turned their hand to writing historical fiction, haven't we? So there's, there's certainly a move in that direction. Do you, do you see any negative aspects to this in terms of our understanding of history or do you think it, it must surely be a good thing for people oh, to just be interested thing. in history in general I, I, I think of course it's a good thing and I mean as I said historical fiction is a gateway to history and, and the more people get interested in history the more people actually go on to read real history and, and I mean I would say real history is non-fiction history I think that can only be a good thing so I don't see any downside to it whatsoever Okay, last question uh, what advice would you give to any budding historical novelists who are out there listening to this and thinking I could be the next Bernard Cornwell Oh, good. Go for it. Absolutely go for it. And, uh, you know, I mean, but remember, it's a solitary vice. You just have to sit down for a number of hours every day and do it. That was Bernard Cornwell. His new book, Death of Kings, is published on the 1st of October by HarperCollins in the UK. You can read an interesting opinion piece on the value of historical fiction by Jerome de Groot in the October issue of BBC History magazine. To get in touch, if you have any comments on the podcast, you can email your thoughts to podcast at historyextra.com or contact us via Twitter, twitter.com slash historyextra or Facebook, facebook.com slash historyextra. That's it. Next week, I'll be discussing Queen Matilda, the wife of William the Conqueror with her biographer, Tracy Borman. It's fascinating. Don't miss it. Mm-hmm.